What's keeping me up is I don't really know if the quote-unquote banking crisis is over. We've done another temporary measure, but it was a process of many months and then a couple years where maybe we'll face the repercussions, like you said, of we overcorrected in 2008, right? But we didn't necessarily solve the problem at the time. And if it happens at a later date, maybe this is that later date to pay that check. Hello there. How are you all? Did you have a good weekend? We had a final rail bed for game of the season. We won 2 0. And so that is it. Signed off. Cup winners, league winners. We move on to step five. Can't wait to get that going. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today we have Jason Brett, aka Regulatory Jason, back on the show. Now, a few months ago, when I was in Nashville, I sat down with Jason and talked about the bank runs of 2008 and the regulatory framework that follows. So if you haven't checked that show out, definitely go and listen to that. It will be linked in the show notes. But only a couple of months later, we had our very own bank runs. It was really surreal to watch these things that Jason was telling us about play out in real time. Now, at the same time, we have a new regulatory threat by the way of the Restrict Act, a blanket act that is meant to target TikTok, but looks like it'll be much broader. So it was time to get Jason back on the show, and it was great to have him in my hometown of Bedford, of all places. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this one. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can hit me up on my email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Peter. Welcome to Bedford. Yes, I am so excited to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you here. We're trying to create a bit of a thing here in Bedford. Bedford's becoming... A bit of a place for Bitcoin. And uh, it's a shame you're not going to be here on Monday because my team's about to win the league. Maybe. I'm definitely looking forward to going to Saturday's match, even though it's an away game. But I understand Monday's the place to be. So Monday. I might have to move a couple of hills, not mountains. Well, listen, if you're here on Monday, you might have a chance to see us win the league. Uh, it's a bit complicated. Basically, if we win on Saturday and Chenox win, it's going to go to Monday. Uh, but if we win and I think they drop points, we've won the league on Saturday. But I think both are going to win. But if you're here on Monday, you've got a very good chance of seeing us win the league. Well, I have to tell you one quick thing, if I could, just as, as you know, when anytime in a new city, I was taking a cab over to the train and I was learning from the, the cab driver. I was asking him, you know, what his take was on Bitcoin, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, oh, it's interesting. You know, I said, oh, I'm going out to this, you know, do this podcast. And there's this guy who he actually has a, a football team that's in Bedford. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. He says, and he has a bunch of like Bitcoin sponsors, you know, the, the companies are sponsoring. And he goes like, oh, that's terrible. That was like, so we're really careful with this because I don't want to ram Bitcoin down people's throats. Yeah, we are a Bitcoin team, but you can come along, you can enjoy a game, you can buy a beer and watch the football and go home and not really pay attention to the Bitcoin thing. At the same time, if you want to come to one of our meetups, you can come along, you can learn about Bitcoin, and you know people do do that. But we're not forcing it down people's throats because I don't want to be known as that local Bitcoin moron. I want people to support the team. But I really don't want local people buying Bitcoin and losing money. I mainly say to people, it's like you have, it's on our website, we've got um, why you should not buy Bitcoin. And so that article is really about why you should learn about Bitcoin. And that's what we really want it to be about. But listen, if you come, we would love you there. Uh, I think you might actually be the first person who's been on the show to actually come to a game. So, okay. And listen, if you can come, you will have, you'll have a really great time. But if we don't win the league on Monday, you're never fucking coming again. Just, just to be clear. <laughs> uh, anyway, listen. I absolutely love the last show we've made. And when Danny said you're coming back, I was really excited. So 
yeah, it's because I'm a huge fan of the big short film and there's one specific section in it because the film you know, highlights everything that's going on with the financial crisis. But there's that bit in the film where, I think it's right near the end, where the family are packing up their car and moving out. They've basically lost their home and it's showing you the real-world impact of what's happened. And I think that was what was great about the last show is that you know, you're somebody who experienced it. You worked at the FDIC and you showed us all those videos about what happened and it was kind of like real context to it. And so, yeah, we made that show, and then since then, we're like, what the fuck, man? Did not expect The Locust to come out again so soon. Okay, so not everyone would have listened to that last show, Jason. And if you haven't, please go and check it out. It's well worth listening to. Um, but can you just give us a little bit of a TLDR on who you are and your background? Sure, yeah. Um, so I started out as a, a junior analyst at the FDIC in 2008, Uh literally in the division of finance and then uh, the division of capital markets. So I dealt with both the bank failures of IndyMac Bank and also Lehman Brothers, Washington Mutual, Wachovia. Um, and then I went on to do uh, bank examinations uh, for the FDIC for safety and soundness and consumer compliance for about four years. Then I went to work at Treasury, which was on Obama's Making Home Affordable program uh, with the Treasury to make sure that banks were helping people so there wouldn't be things like robo-foreclosures, keeping people in their home. So compliance examiner. About 2016, I switched into the world of Bitcoin, doing policy and regulatory areas. Um, been an amazing journey to have trans transition from sort of the, the innards of banking world to what this, you know, value proposition is that we have here. Uh, I've been loving it ever since. And what clicked for you with Bitcoin? Um, it goes back to what I experienced in 2008 when it hit me and nobody you nor anybody was really talking a lot about the problems with the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the lack of trust that people started to have in the financial system. That was like the crack. And so when I saw Bitcoin, I was like, this is a new proposition for trust that people could look to as opposed to individuals at the top of banking system that could potentially put all these people at risk. And like you say, whether end up people being homeless or losing their jobs, there are real impacts to everyday people uh, when decisions go awry at the top of any financial system. So that was the, yeah, pull in for me ever since been like that. And you had a good time at Clubhouse. Is that still a thing? Are people still using Clubhouse? It's still a thing. I think it's dwindling quickly. The American Hoddle House. The American Hoddle House. I'll tell you um, one thing about Clubhouse, though. If you want to go in, in the evening time, uh, American evening time, about 1 a.m. to 6 p.m., 6 a.m., you can find John Seth pretty regularly hanging out in Clubhouse for hours. Maybe I'll go and check it out again. But I, look, I had it before. I had it on my phone. And what would happen is I'd be there working and I would get these alerts. It'd be like, oh, American Hoddle's on. And I'd always jump in. And it was such a distraction. I had to switch the alerts off. So... All right, maybe I'll go back. But listen, anyway, great to have you back on the show. Really enjoyed the last show we made. And I think you're a really important person in the space and a really important person to speak to because you've worked on the inside. So you're not ideologically driven. And you understand with a historical context what happens in the banking system and, and what happens when things go wrong. And, and so I really wanted to get you back on the show and, and talk to you about a few things. But I've got a setup from this. And... Uh, we're going to be talking about choke points, and I want to talk about a specific film. <laughs> Have you seen Kindergarten Cop? Yes, yeah. You know the little bit where the kids give the performance? That was kind of like my 
opening understanding of the historical context of America, that that bit where they stood forward and they spoke, I always kind of remembered that. And, you know, a few years later, I, I traveled to America a lot and I've got like a really, you know, I'm, I'm, I've become a real big fan of America and American history and the establishment of the Republic. Um, I've done uh, everything I can to understand what happened during the Civil War. I've read the Constitution. I've read the Federalist Papers. Um, and I just find it a real fascinating evolution of a country, all the creation, the establishment of a country and how it tried to establish itself in a different rule of law, a different way from, say, the UK. And so I'm, I'm going to basically refer to this quote, and it's the Abraham Lincoln quote. It's from the uh, speech, the Gettysburg Address, but just bear with me. So, which was, democracy as a rule of the people, for the people, and by the people. This being a democracy is a form of government in which the rulers are elected by the people, the citizens of the country elect the government to rule the country, and the elected government work for the welfare of the people. And I just feel like America now is a very, very long way from that. And so, listen, that, that's just the framework. I hope that makes sense. But that's the framework I want to use for this interview. Well, it's um, I, I agree with the, the concept that there's certain powers now that have been sort of shifted back to the leaders in America that that are contrary to that concept or at least allow for the ability to avoid the idea that it needs to be in the people's best interest. Well, so listen, look, I don't believe the US government or the people who work within the government anymore and also in part the Fed. Like, I think people who work for the Fed, they are trying to do their best sometimes, but I don't believe that the elected officials are now working for the best of the people. And so listen, I'm going to want to get into the Restrict Act and I haven't paid a huge amount of attention to it. I just saw some stuff online about TikTok being banned and you know, didn't pay too much attention to it. And then I saw somebody put something on Twitter about how the Restrict Act could be used against Bitcoiners. So it's a subject we definitely need to touch on. Uh, and I think the starting point would be for you to explain what the Restrict Act is. Sure. So uh, the Restrict Act has been introduced just in the Senate, um, but I think it's important to note from the outset that despite all the criticisms, it has 26 senators who have already signed on as co-sponsors of the bill, uh, bipartisan. So that's very significant because there's only 100 senators, so you have 26% of the entire Senate that's agreeing with this bill and willing to put their name on it. What the Restrict Act does is it gives powers to the Secretary of Commerce and it allows the Commerce Secretary to determine if there is a quote unquote critical infrastructure, which is a term that was coined under the Patriot Act in 2001 after 9-11, um, a critical infrastructure that could be subverted or used by foreign adversaries in a way that would disrupt or potentially threaten the national security of the United States. So. Uh, this is not a new concept as to what the Commerce Secretary should do. Think about it a lot in terms of the framework uh, that we've had before and talked about with Bitcoin in terms of sanctions. Sanctions comes from the Department of Treasury, which is the OFAC, uh, Office of Foreign Assets Control. And what OFAC does is they stop either individual persons or they talk about countries um, in terms of where an entire country might be a particular threat. What the Commerce Secretary could do under this bill is any 
uh, let's talk about TikTok, because that was the framework that it was sort of provided in. Uh, TikTok is, is owned, a majority controlled owner, 50% or more, uh, by China. So, so China's one of the... So, yes. Sorry to interject here, but... Mm-hmm. Isn't it that all companies in China are 50% owned by the government? That that all of them in China... I th- I'm pretty sure it's like 50% of... Not 50% of companies. Companies are 50% owned by the government. That's like a regulatory requirement. Is that true? Do we know that? I don't know. I, 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 mean, I don't believe so, but... I, I don't know. And I should say the bill makes it clear it could be the country. It could be a company that's clearly controlled by the company, you know, like in other words, somebody who's running that company that's controlled by China. But either which way, let's just say TikTok is either controlled by an individual who's controlled by China or China itself. It could be China, Russia, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, and North Korea. So those are the six countries under this Restrict Act. That's all those countries that, like, when I go into America, you have to tick if you've been to any of those countries. Yeah, right. Have you been? Yeah. Exactly. And so it's a new paradigm because remember with the Restrict Act, the the acronym, which I don't remember completely, but the ICT is Information Communications and Technology. So where does that bring us to in terms of Bitcoin and the threat to really anything that's on the internet? To me, Peter, this is a really interesting point in our civilization because if you take a step back and think about this from a broad perspective, there's a new battlefield and the battlefield is almost this cyber warfare, right? We're talking about, you know, whether there's hacks, right? There could be ransomware, you know, China shut off the internet initially when it came out, right? So we've almost now come full circle where we at America are saying, well, if something's being developed by China, that's just purely over the internet. Is that something that's a threat to the United States? So that to me is a very interesting paradigm to think about this, that the U.S. is now at least thinking, gee, there could be a threat if somebody in, or China itself owns an app like TikTok and could cause enough disruption in the United States, maybe swing an election, whatever, with the influence that it has. I mean, it is a real threat. And look, I am a big proponent of free speech, but we recently just interviewed a chap called um, Ahmed Gatnash. Ahmed Gatnash. And he works for a human rights organization who's trying to progress human rights in the Middle East. And he talked a lot about uh, Arabic Twitter and the conversations that happen in Arabic Twitter. And there's a mass dissemination of propaganda that comes from authoritarian states who disagree with the uh, context of the conversations and and he said that's basically made Arabic Twitter unusable uh, and that ultimately led to a conversation that we ended up having about Pegasus and the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi uh, but this is the th- like this is the real threat of what's being disrupted yes there if you go back let's go back for a second to tornado cash remember with tornado cash it's people should be able to move in their bitcoin and move it out and stay anonymous right and anonymity is something that's an american value to one degree or another the federalist papers you mentioned the beginning of the show was written under you know anonymous uh, pseudo names to help create all that so that's an important thing but when you have the uh the this this concept that you could be influenced or that Bitcoin might be used by another country to do something. So in the example of the Tornado Cash, it was pretty clear North Korea was using money, washing it through Tornado Cash, and then buying nuclear weapons. And there's been pretty direct evidence that a lot of that is happening. So the question we have to ask ourselves is we want the benefit of anonymity. 
I don't want to know your business financially. You don't want me to know your business, vice versa, right? That's a respected, almost universal truth. But at the same time, we have this world where everything's online, right? So how do we also protect to make sure that we don't end up living under North Korean rule because they're able to figure out how to get so much of the Bitcoin and do so much funding? Um, and I don't know. I don't know the answers. I just, I, it's, it, this is, this is the setting for where I think you think you see things like the restrict act come into fruition. Cause I think right now people are just guessing it. Hey, what's the solution? Maybe just ban it. Maybe just shut it off. Well, I always find the people have the most simple takes as the most naive and all, almost the difficult ones to deal with. Like, you know, when I'm ever having a conversation on Twitter and somebody comes in with this super binary simple take, I actually find it quite naive. And look, the thing is, it doesn't matter whether I am uh, a proponent of democracy or not, or I agree with government or not. These are complicated issues. We know this. You know, there are dangerous people. There are adversaries out there. They are trying to di disrupt democracy. They are trying to spread dis disinformation. We know this is happening. And so this is where I want to focus my attention on is, is not what is the Patriot Act or the Restrict Act, is how is it going to be weaponized against Americans? Because we know the Patriot Act was and has been weaponized against Americans, and we know that the Restrict Act will also be weaponized against Americans. And to me, that is just antithetical to what democracy is. Yes. And I'll tell you, there's a division in Congress about the Restrict Act. Some have said it's gone too far. If we go to the idea of what, how the Restrict Act might actually shut off Bitcoin, this is a, a notion of like shutting off TikTok, not an individual user of TikTok. So it empowers the Secretary of Commerce to sit back and say, like you just talked about in the, in the first part of what you were saying, is there are all these threats out there and we just, we need to shut it down. So we got to keep them out. Maybe there's some people in America that like using TikTok and they share CAD videos, but you know what? We'll leave that to YouTube and everything else. This is something that has to be done for national security because they might swing an election. Bitcoin, same premise of it's not me sending you Bitcoin, but it could be said that maybe North Korea or China is using Bitcoin so well or so good that in America, the Secretary of Commerce could say, I'm... I'm shutting off the Bitcoin protocol, meaning no one in America is allowed to use Bitcoin, the network, not necessarily hold Bitcoin, but just you can't use the network anymore, which by default means we probably couldn't send it via Bitcoin and it would probably be written to ban lightning as well, you know, even though it'd be off chain. And so that brings you to a question, right, of, again, like I'm, I'm laughing because I'm just thinking of the enormity of this, of where we went from China to not using the internet to shut everyone else out to now here we are saying, well, the U.S. can't use certain things on the internet because of what China might do. And it's an ironic flip. And I think that there has to be a different type of... So it's very broad. That's the problem with the Restrict Act. Other people have been talking about something called the Data Act as an alternative that just focuses on the privacy. In other words, how your privacy might be deprived by TikTok, not necessarily the national security angle. People are talking about that more. But the problem with the Restrict Act, it's so broad it could include Bitcoin. And to me... I think Bitcoin needs to be something separate from the rest of the internet because of the value that it proposes and because it works like money. Um, I, I recently in a Twitter thread, it had been mentioned that uh, Natalie Smensky and I had written this uh, sort of resolution for Bitcoin Lovely. in the state of Texas. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, fantastic. And I wrote the first draft, but it would not have gone as far as it would have without Natalie because now it's actually up for potential voting. And the whole idea of that is that there has to be certain protections for people who have Bitcoin 
in the United States. And I believe at some point we're going to need some sort of constitutional amendment to do that. Because you're talking about not just the right to privacy, but the right to property. You know, you're owning something. What does that mean? Uh, the ability to mine Bitcoin. But um, code is speech. And code is speech. Yeah, all these things of the ability, yeah, to be able to have the imagination, do what you want to do. So, so Bitcoin's a little bit unique. But, and I say that to illustrate how the Restrict Act in this case is so broad that it could include anything. And that goes to the second point of what you just said, Peter, which is that's the threat of it, right? We're trying to stop the national security issue, but are we then just taking everyone else's, you know, it, could it later someone with malintent who takes over the government use the Restrict Act to shut down certain activities that they don't like in the U.S.? I think there's also like a massive hypocrisy in it because we know Cambridge Analytica interfered with elections using Facebook. And if it's a US domiciled social media network, they don't seem to care. But now it's China, that's all to, like, and I understand like these, it's a kind of thinly veiled surveillance tool. But do you think this would have happened if it was a US social media platform? Not a bill like this. Um, but they can haul them from Congress. True. Yeah, there's much more, right. Like think about how a lot of people in Congress literally hate Facebook and, and accuse them of issues relating to um, child sex trafficking and others creating the forms. I mean, they, they have to answer to Congress directly. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, something. And, you know, the ir irony I can't help but of Cambridge Analytica being what from England. So no. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there is a big difference between TikTok and Bitcoin, though, in that when they ban Huawei or if they ban TikTok, what they're really doing is stopping surveillance because they are tools which are owned by China. And therefore, when people are using uh, TikTok and making a cat video or a dance video or something in Congress is doing that, that is a surveillance tool that sends data directly back to China. But if they ban Bitcoin, they're not actually stopping data going back to China. So what they're really only doing is banning Americans from using Bitcoin. They're not harming the network. They're not changing. They're not changing how the network works. They're just really harming Americans. And Americans would probably still be using it. Let's be honest. I mean, so yeah, they would just be harming U.S. individuals. Um, okay, can we just go back? A section. Uh, half our audience is in America, but half of it isn't. Can you just explain what an act is in itself and how does it work? Like, how does it get through Congress? How does it get through the Senate? Because I feel like every time I see an act, and maybe there's loads of them, but every time I see an act announced, it seems to be some massive important legislation. It's almost like it marks uh, an important period in time where something important is going to change. Can, can you just explain what, how it is and how that all works? Well, so it, it's the act is typically a name given to a bill that becomes law, but uh, every, I mean every bill that goes through all the time. Y yes, they all have they're all given names and they're all usually chosen because it's a, a good acronym for something that they want to sort of explain publicly. But typically, it will. I don't know that you actually have to have it called an act at the end of a bill, um, but essentially. It goes through Congress and it's introduced by either one of the 435 members of Congress or 100 members of senators. And by the way, um, whichever house it comes out of, that means that really anybody can put an act out about anything. Oh, so it can come from the Senate or the House? Or the House, yeah. Either one can introduce it. Um, but introducing it just means it's been introduced. And then it has to usually go through a committee and then is voted on by one of the houses where you need a majority. And then it would have to be voted on by the other house. 
And then if there's a disagreement between the way they vote on it, they have to have a conference to say, well, we agree on it, but for this point and that point. And if they can then come to an agreement, then they send it over to the president. Uh, the act at that point is passed. Um, it's up to uh, the president to enact. In other words, bring that legislation into where it is actually law, or the president can choose to veto it. Congress would then have an opportunity to try to overrule that veto, but it's a much higher standard than just the majority to overrule a veto. Ah, interesting. So we were trying to figure this out earlier because we thought it might go to the House first and then to the Senate or the Senate first and then the House. It can go either direction. Okay. Yes. The, the Restrict Act has been introduced only by the Senate. And that's actually an interesting point about the Restrict Act because nobody in the House has yet chosen to introduce it after it started getting all this flack. Ah, uh, okay. Interesting. Okay. So... Can you just help me a little bit more, uh, or the listeners outside of uh, America, but can you explain what the difference is between the House and the Senate? Um, well, so just here, they think House of Commons, House of Lords. Okay. Senate is the House of Lords. Co uh, Congress, House of Representatives is like your House of Commons, except that, you know, the Senate used to not be elected directly by the people. It was elected typically by the state legislatures. That changed only about a hundred years ago. Where now you can't. Yeah, it's the popular vote that elects you as a senator. So, senator, the Senate, the U.S. Senate, is is considered the greatest deliberative body in the world. Which there's a little bit of humor in that because that means they discuss and deliberate over things for years and years and years. They move a lot slower. So I think the the House of Commons and the House of Lords was probably the template where they set up the Senate in the House in the U.S. So with the House of Lords, the rulers are not elected here. Right, exactly. And look, I have issues with that as well, but not everyone agrees. And this is a debate here. Some people think they should be elected. Some people think they should be appointed. And I think the debate is around that these are important decisions they're having to make. And the people who think they should be appointed are the ones that think the voting public don't know enough or don't understand enough about the things or the decisions they're going to be making. And, that, and that's where the Senate was. Again, I think the Senate was never intended to be like the House of Lords, but like Let's break away from, it won't just be appointed, but you have to have the state let people elected to kind of vote on it. Um, but it's, well, I mean, U.S. senators are not necessarily held to a higher standard. They're just not, not supposed to be doing these things, but there's always the inquiries of what they actually are and aren't doing. So Daddy brought this up this morning with regards to naming conventions because the Patriot Act is like, yeah, fuck yeah, America, we're patriotic. Whereas the Restrict Act is a bit like, yeah, fuck you, we're just going to tell you what you can't do. Yeah. I like, you know, so Congressman Warren Davidson, who I've had on Clubhouse, he has a great name. You know, it's the KYC Act, which is the Keep Your Coins Act. And that's a very interesting way of saying, because it happened after the Canadian trucker controversy, where he said no U.S. agency can essentially take away your, your Bitcoin or stop you from using it. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right now. I'm a hodler. I'm not selling. We're in a bull market. 
but I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I've been stacking sats through this bear market. Now, both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also, today we have Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi makes Bitcoin privacy effortless as the wallet allows you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. Wasabi is incredibly easy to use, even for a non-technical person like me, as it provides you with privacy by default. There's no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi uses coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users. Also, BTC Pay server users can even make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a massive privacy improvement. Also, from April the 19th, Trezor Suite users can now make CoinJoins on the hardware wallet, saving on fees and also providing superior security. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. I also want to add that the Oslo Freedom Forum is coming up on June the 13th to the 15th in Norway. It's a unique event that brings together brave activists and dissidents from across the world with top names and builders in the Bitcoin space. If you want to learn more or get involved in global Bitcoin adoption, then this is the event to attend. I'll be heading there myself. But if you want to learn more and grab tickets, please head over to oslofreedomforum.com today. Also, make sure you check out Alex Gladstein's new book called Hidden Repression. Alex came on the show last year to talk about how the IMF and the World Bank actually exploit poor countries instead of helping them. And he has now turned that research into a book you can dive into and share with your friends. It's on Amazon today. Just search for Hidden Repression and Gladstein. And you know what? He's one of the few elected officials that I look at in the US and I say, you know what? He's an honest person. He knows what he's doing. It's a bit like Cynthia Lummis. There's like the occasional ones, and maybe it's because they're Bitcoiners, but you know they're the few, they're like the rare examples of people I do trust. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back to the Patriot Act, which came uh, following 9/11. Can you explain what it was designed to do and how it has been weaponized against Americans? Yeah. So uh, the Patriot Act after 9/11 came down to what was critical infrastructure, meaning like phones and everything. And so the idea was, you know, with the planning of 9-11, uh, you had people who were training in Florida to fly planes into buildings. And there was clearly communications used with phones in a way where it was felt like had those been monitored in some way, these, these private transactions, private phone calls, um, that maybe we could have stopped 9-11. So the Patriot Act was designed to with its good intentions, right, to monitor really everybody's conversations in the country. But when I say everyone, I mean, but with the intent of saying, we really need to watch closely what's going on, because if there happens to be 12 people from some foreign country, or let's just call them the green people that want to bomb us, we can see, hear their conversations, we can see what they're planning, and we can act ahead of time. Because the threat with 9-11 was talk about the U.S. making history, was a quite a unique threat. If you think about what they did to turn our own infrastructure against us, right? Taking yeah. over airplanes, taking down the two trade buildings. Um, 
I mean, that's, that, that was, that had people terrified, you know? Um, and so, but in, in those moments of terror, I think the problem with the Patriot Act, of course, is that it could be, you know, it was the Bush administration, right? It was the Republicans is what were they doing to then watch Democrats or others? And, that, you know, that's, that's a question you talk about movies. I really like Dark Knight with Batman. Mm. And I remember at the end of Dark Knight where they try that thing where he can just see all the conversations, try to figure out where the Joker is, right? And at the end of the movie, Morgan Freeman kind of sets the whole thing on fire and said, no, it's, this is not worth it to just see what other people are doing. And so that's, that's really, again, I think it's still a question, right, is I don't want 12 terrorists in the country plotting all these things using, you know, UPS trucks or whatever they might be conspiring to do, like, against our country. But I also don't want the fact that if I want to talk to my wife on a phone or talk to my friend or talk to you, that someone's listening to that conversation who might have a, a personal grudge against me because of the party I'm affiliated with or because of whatever my politics might be. Um, and that's where it gets to be weaponized. But repealing acts is also very rare. Very rare, if not uh, impossible. Um, I mean, you, you, the most likely thing would be to amend it to make it not as as damaging. Um, so, I was ten when that came in. What was so? I've been like no idea what the ten, gen- ten when the Patriot Act. Yeah. So what what did people in America think? Like the general population were they for this because it was like our ah, terrorism? We need to fix this. Or or was there a lot of people pushing back? There were some Democrats who were already starting to push back on it because they saw the broad powers. Mm -hmm. But the the U.S. moved quite quickly um, through uh, uh, the government as far as establishing powers. Um, It's a great movie with Christian Bale. I can't think of the name of it, where he reprises the role of uh, uh, the vice president Cheney and some of the things he did when he took over because he had this view of what the president's power should be, which is very broad. And that's what essentially allowed like the Patriot Act to essentially go. But he was establishing all these powers the government needed to have to take control, you know, and and do certain things in these times of stress. I still remember, uh, you know, you being 10 aging myself, but I was probably 28 or 29 when 9-11 happened. And I was volunteering after that down at the trades and the National Guard was moving in and out. And I was just doing things like giving them water, whatever, before they go back to the site. And I was talking to some of the other volunteers and Bush had just given his speech at ground zero, 9-11. And that's where Bush took the microphone. And he's like, you know, we're going to knock those buildings, no, those people's buildings down because they knocked our buildings down. And like, I, at first my initial reaction was, that's great. Yeah. Let's, let's get them back. But like there were other volunteers I was with who were Democrats who were immediately worried Mm -hmm. by that kind of statement. In other words, how far is, how is he going to politicize all this to do the things he wants to do? And I think Iraq is the scariest of that. And you know what? There was a lot of sympathy for America at the time. And 9-11 was huge. It was the worst terrorist attack in history. And so when the U.S. entered into Afghanistan, you know, whether or not you agree with war, there was, there was a lot of sympathy towards it. I think the turning point was when America entered Iraq because we knew we were being lied to. We knew what was happening there. There's actually a really good uh, documentary about it. It's called Turning Point. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend, recommend going to see it. Um, but that is where the political support, well, the support for the politics or the politicians who were making the decisions, I think that's where it all changed. Okay, so just going back to the restrict tax, why don't they just 
ban TikTok? Why do they need an act for it? Like we have it in here in the UK. I just read this week that uh, TikTok has been banned for government officials to use. So why can't they just ban it? I believe the U.S. brought out a policy where they said government workers couldn't use TikTok uh, and they shouldn't have it on their phones. Um, and there was even pushback from like White House staff that apparently really enjoyed TikTok, but they said, that's, I don't care, it's going off your phone. But the private sector is a, a differentiating factor in what the Restrict Act does, and I think would be a similar impact or feeling amongst people here in, in England would be that it reaches out to the private sector and says no one can use it. So is this just the plan then, that TikTok is just going to be banned in the U.S.? Yes, that's what the Restrict Act would enable the U.S. to do, is to say the Secretary of Commerce that's in charge of all business is to say to all private sector outlooks. So how much power does that Secretary of Commerce have? So the Secretary of Commerce um, generally is pro-technology and pro-business. So when I say that, I mean, they're tasked with things like making sure the U.S. is uh, the leading, uh, leading the way in technology. That's come into question under Bitcoin because of some of the policies. So people have been looking to commerce to say, you should be pushing us to learn more about this technology and how we can use it. Um, but the, the Secretary of Commerce has power over business matters, you know, international import exports, um, really what all businesses do. And so there's, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, a twist because typically they're supposed to be advancing our economy. But now we're saying, well, the Secretary of Commerce should also be able to eliminate dangers because of this new digital economy that exists. So I think this is the threat of what Bitcoin presents in that Bitcoin takes you out of the, the, the economy within the US. Like if if part of the uh, U.S. economy is, or part of the financial system is breaking, you just get moved from one part to the other. So you could be in dollars and you could go into equities. But the problem with Bitcoin, which I think is the threat to the digital economy, is that when people go to Bitcoin, they're ex essentially exiting that and entering a new kind of decentralized economy. Well, yes. I mean, the same could be said maybe if you went and bought gold, right? Like, are you exiting the quote-unquote system? But what's important is the system. So what's important to understand about these banking crises is, is that uh, the system consists of the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the OCC, and a lot of what they determine about what should happen with banking in America. OCC, that's the, the office of... Office of Comptroller of the Currency. Uh, wasn't that the guy from One West? Brian Brooks. Oh, and didn't he, he ended up at Coinbase. Brian Brooks was at Coinbase. He then went to work as the acting director of uh, the OCC. Yeah. He's the one that uh, wrote out, helped write out interpretive letters to allow the custody of Bitcoin at banks, yeah. the usement of stable coins for payments, and, and you actually using blockchain networks as part of a bank system of conducting transactions. And he's an ally. Absolutely an ally. In fact, he was asked a question um, in a hearing one time where he was asked, you know, what's monetary policy, you know, what's the value of the U.S. dollar? And his answer was whatever the Federal Reserve decides to do. He said, and when he was asked about the cryptocurrency industry, he said, well, Bitcoin is different. It's an asset class. You know, people choose to buy it, hoping maybe it goes up or down. Um, the, all the other coins are essentially networks that people are kind of gambling in to see if they grow or not. You know, he didn't call it like a shit coin. Uh, but he, you know, essentially I would call him absolutely an ally in terms of support banking, that the banking system needs to support the Bitcoin economy. It needs to be there as a service to it. And he's spoken out very much against what he saw happen with the way the regulators coordinated about 
the, the latest banking stuff. Don't want to jump ahead, but, but I would say, though, that with One West, Brian Brooks got that job because Secretary Mnuchin was his partner with the One West transaction. And, um, you know, the word kind of off the street is that, you know, Mnuchin felt a little screwed by Brooks because he brought Brooks in because he was an old friend from One West and didn't expect him to go crazy about Bitcoin with all these things. So he quickly became annoyed with with Brooks's stuff, but Brooks didn't stop doing it. So, so first, fuck Mnuchin. Like I get Brian Brooks. He was probably just trying to do the right thing. But Mnuchin absolutely exploited the FDIC program. And yeah, so fuck him. People lost their homes. But but uh, that's a conversation for another day. So I want to talk about uh, Elizabeth Warren's anti-crypto army, because in some ways, Bitcoiners, we're, we have an anti-crypto army. We've got, we've got an agreement with her there. So I, I, th- I think, I know, there's an interesting alignment there, right? But I hopefully no one will think Senator Warren is their friend when it comes to Bitcoin, because she's been very outspoken about the energy Bitcoin uses too, and said Bitcoin must be stopped. I don't know when it happened for her her group, but somewhere in her office, she made this decision that instead of going after the banks and the Occupy Wall Street, the next thing was to go after Bitcoin. And a lot of it is this, what I've noticed is the progressives in the U.S. really do see Bitcoin as an enemy. Uh, they see it as something that nece- that won't necessarily help minorities. They see it as just a bunch of white men who are making a bunch of money, and it's just some an, a new thing, but under the old guise of let's figure out how to rip off poor people. And that's the way they think about it. In fact, one of the conversations I've had with them when I when I reach out and talk is, you know, they say to me they don't want they actually don't want, they want privacy. They said, can we get Bitcoin, but we can just put it in our pocket, like don't have it on a blockchain because we don't want the government tracking us. You know, so that's the, that's their opting out of like the crypto world, but they do, they do like the idea that we need to empower people. And I think that's where they've leaned, not for a CBDC, but for sort of a treasury digital dollar system that'll do things like with welfare, social security, Medicaid, and make it easier to get that into the hands of people who are poor. Um, So I think Warren basically picked up on this anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto noise, saw it as a way of galvanizing her troops and has been doing so ever since. Um, I don't know really who those people are that would be quote unquote anti-crypto, except maybe the Bitcoin maximalists and people in regular businesses that they won't even have, you know, webinars anymore on cryptocurrency or talk about it in any professional discussion because they're so frustrated by it. This is why I think the work of Jason Meyer is so important. Look, I've talked about him a lot on the show, but we are not going to convince progressives and liberals again into Bitcoin through conservatives. Mm-hmm. We need people like Jason writing his book and talking to talking to people on their level. Yeah, it's not just him. You've got to look at the work that Ovik Roy has been doing at Freeop. They are an institution which writes about equal financial opportunity. They also are proponents of Bitcoin. And look, I know some of these people still think Bitcoin is going to make the rich richer, and it could do, but it can also be a leveler. And other people near the bottom get a chance to get on early could also benefit from this. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for these poor people to to participate in a system. And I think that uh, Senator Warren um, 
is, is contradicting herself. Because if you listen to what she said when she started this whole notion of anti-crypto in general, but now the anti-crypto army is, she, she, ta- she pointed to what happened with the FTX scandal. But she said banks would have done this better. You know, had they been under the banking system that would have had the regulations, the regulators there to stop them from falling apart like this. Senator Warren has been the, the most uh, anti-bank person ever, you know, against Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So it was amazing to hear her actually defend the banking system in America, right? Saying it just needs more regulation. We, we are absolutely on the same team in terms of FTX, and she's got a point, right? This is where... I know I'm quote unquote regulatory Jason or, you know, like people, you know, there are a need, there is a need for regulators in one degree or another. And even if the regulators are financed by the, you know, the, the bank's fees or whatever, to have somebody there who's almost this consultant, but can also like blow a whistle, it's not perfect, but it's better than somebody using QuickBooks, right? And doing whatever they want in the Bahamas. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a funny time to be defending the banks. Uh, yes. But we don't need to get into the detail of what actually happened recently. I've covered that with Caitlin Long and um, Lynn Auden. Anyone who wants to check that out, please go and check out the show notes. But I just want to get your general take of what's been happening with the likes of Credit Suisse, the Silicon Valley Bank, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I have so much respect for Caitlin and Lynn's opinion on all this, giving the details to it. What I would say is just from just putting my regulator's hat on is it's an overcorrection from 2008, just the way 2008 was an overcorrection from the Great Depression. So in 2008, you had... Well, hold, hold on, hold on. <laughs> That's some take. We're going to have to go back a sec. Okay, you need to explain this to me. 2008 was an overcorrection from the Great Depression? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, Ben Bernanke, who was the chair of the Federal Reserve at the time, was, it's well known, he was a student of the Great Depression. You know, he, he studied it you know, night and day, understanding what happened. And his determination, he said this publicly, is that um, there was a a credit stopped flowing in America. You know, 30% of all the banks shut down. 9,000 banks shut down during the Great Depression. There was a seizure of credit. You couldn't get a loan to start a business. You couldn't get a loan to get a house. No one was able, business wasn't able to flow. And that's what really caused the U.S. to go into this collapse and required the New Deal with FDR. So with 2008, right, that was under Ben Bernanke's watch. He said, we have to avoid a Great Depression scenario at all costs. So we have to make sure there's a flow of credit. Thus, if we recall, and Caitlin Long's explained this, all the Federal Reserve programs that started adding up this huge debt were created in 2008. Really out of, I don't want to say it like, like, this isn't a bad reflection on Bernanke, but out of paranoia of if credit doesn't keep flowing in the economy, we're going to end up like the Great Depression. And so that's where, to me, the overcorrection was the bloated Federal Reserve balance sheet we have now. Because the idea was you got to keep make sure everyone can get credit. Everyone has to keep getting homes. Everyone has to keep starting businesses, get jobs. If we lose that, then we end up back to the devastation of the Great Depression. Was, was that the correct take? Let's just avoid the Great Depression? Kind of was, right? I mean, it wasn't like, let's proactively figure out really what's going on with this housing market. But the economy did reach a point where if certain measures weren't taken in 2008, things really would have been shut down. But, you know, we need corrections. We all know, what is his name? Ray? Oh, Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio. Okay, so... We've all seen his video that talks about economic cycles. Um, 
But we need corrections. If we don't allow corrections to happen in the economy, we're just kicking the can down the road. And if we don't allow for the contraction, we're going to head to a much bigger contraction down the line. But we can't escape that. Absolutely. I mean, that's to me why I say I think it was an overcorrection, right? It wasn't necessarily the solution for what was happening in 2008, but it was a solution to avoid 1933 all over again. And I think moving to where we are today, my argument about the current thing that happens with banks is saying this was an overcorrection to what happened in 2008. So, we just talked about one West and that, but back to that was, it was IndyMac Bank, right? IndyMac Bank was uh, a huge bank failure in the West Coast, had a bunch of subprime mortgages. We watched the videos together. We saw the people on the streets. Everything was falling apart because they reopened the bank on Monday. Remember that? We yeah. showed like Monday, was chaos. CBS News is criticizing it. The FDIC is contradicting itself. Marty Grunberg, who's the chair of the FDIC now, was the vice vice chair of the FDIC in 2008. So he was the same, um, the same person who's now overseeing this crisis. I don't have what, like Ben Bernanke said about the distinction between the Great Recession of 2008 and the Great Depression that was an overcorrection. What I can tell you is what I saw him do over that weekend with uh, rising it to a, an, an emergency, a systemic crisis where he backed all the deposits of Signature Bank, of um, Silicon Valley Bank um, and said every, all the depositors are gonna be made whole and that by Monday morning, it was all basically done, right? They were all, everyone knew they could, people were putting in more money into those banks because they thought it was even safer than JP Morgan Chase because of the promises. That's where you saw Grunberg saying to himself, and this is me, but I believe this is right, is he had to avoid what happened in 2008 with the YouTube videos in AMAC Bank. They knew if Monday morning happened, 9 a.m., there'd be total chaos. So they had to control the situation. They wanted everyone to stay calm. And, and this is now where it gets very dangerous, in my opinion, but also interesting from the perspective of, it was more of a social media crisis on Twitter this time than YouTube. And it happened so fast, how can the regulators react in time? Like no one's really, there's no bank to go to. Some people maybe still go down to a bank branch, but everyone just goes to do things over their computers. So to me, I think that was a bit of an overcorrection because now we've put out this notion that just not just 250,000 deposits should be insured, but there should be insurance on every single dollar in the system. So I think it was Troy Cross who recently came out on Twitter. I think he said that uh, the entire US banking system is now fully reserved. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, and that's what's sad is, of course, it's it's not. You know, I mean, the, the FDIC, the Deposit Insurance Fund, the DIF, um, only has uh, approximately 1.3% of all of the insured deposits out there. So if you were add to the insured deposits, you're going way below 1% of everything that's out there, which is why, Peter, I'm saying that the problem we're having, like with UBS, that ended up acquiring Credit Suisse because they were in trouble, you're going to continue to see these matchmaking events happen. Because think about it. The minute UBS took over Credit Suisse, everyone got calm. The minute you have these new these banks, Silicon Valley bought by another bank, everyone gets calm again because the minute it's all of those deposits are owned by another bank, you're then insured again. You're under the system. It's okay. You don't have to worry if you're over the $250,000 limit. So, 
and, and they have to do it according to the least cost test at the FDIC, which was overruled that weekend. You're supposed to do it so it's the least impact to the deposit insurance fund. They said it's not going to be borne by the taxpayer. That means it's going to be borne by bank depositors because the banks aren't going to pay these fees without passing it on, you know, the customers of the bank. And so what you ultimately have is you're going to see large banks absorb so mid-sized regional banks whenever one of them is in trouble in the future because that's the only solution. There's no, they're not going to pay out the insured depositors because the government, the FDIC fund will just run out of money. And some of this has started happening. It's like when you first started to hear about these bank loans that were being offered, you started thinking, oh shit, man, this is going to happen again. My friends and the people that knew me, I, I was very scared over that weekend. It hit me. I, I thought about our show. You know, I just talked about all this. And so there was this, this is very much to this feeling as there's a, so I know that we have the, the Bitcoin maximalists that don't believe in banks at all, but the vast majority of people believe in the banking system and see that as trust. And a lot of people don't realize when you put money in the bank, it isn't really yours anymore, right? But they still think, well, it's just my money. Um, and when you lose that trust, the trust in banking, that's where I started to see, and that's why I think these larger actions were taken by both the Treasury Secretary, Board of the Federal Reserve, and the FDIC to do this systemic risk intervention because they knew that the trust was on the line. And that's where I think, and so I was a little nervous, but also very interested as I was kind of in 2008 because I think we are so close to that line that could get crossed where the public may stop trusting banks, right? Like when does that happen? And what happens after that happens? And so you're going to end up with a situation like Argentina where people don't want to leave their money in the banks. I mean, right. I, was, I was out in Uruguay and I met a guy and he was saying to me that, I think it was his mom or someone, when she bought a house, she bought it with cash. He used to leave the cash in her house. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this weird story, like she almost went out with it strapped to her, seller taped to her. I'm, sh I'm sure I've got this story right. But look, we're seeing it already. You know, USDC deposits are down something like 9 billion. Danny, you can probably check this. And Teller's up 10 billion. Like people are not trusting these banks. They're not trusting it. And they want to get their money out. And look, I get it. Yep. I, I, that's, not, that's right. Losing your deposits would be catastrophic. Like to me, to my father, it could be catastrophic to anyone. And, you know, we don't want to see a full-blown repeat of 2008. Um, I don't necessarily agree. I, I would say I, we, I think we still could have a full-blown 2008. We've, we've had these happen in, in a matter of days. And what's important is this is the 15th anniversary of the 2008 crisis. We recall it was March of 2008 when Bear Stearns was saved by the government everything kind of went all normal until in July, later in the summer, IndyMac failed. Wasn't it Lehman after that? Uh, Lehman was after IndyMac. Okay. Yeah, because Lehman was in September uh, when, they, when they went down. So there could be things going on that we're just not seeing yet that could bubble up. That being said, um, I think we're out of the woods, you know, for now. Temporarily? Temporarily. Um, so what would have happened if they hadn't have done it? If they hadn't, that means that you had a lot of unhappy people like the Peter Thiels and the venture capitalists of the world who'd be pointing to data of saying, well, now you have all these venture capitalist companies and the people who are working for them couldn't make payroll, lost all their money, pictures of people packing up out of their house and leaving their house. And, and, and the trauma that that would have been is sort of what you would have probably seen shown a lot of. Um, would that be correct? I'm not sure, but I do 
definitely agree that during that weekend, there was a lot of pressure from Silicon Valley itself to save the, the deposits of Silicon Valley Bank. But that was also, I think, to me, slightly self-interested because you also had people who, what, 97% of the people at Silicon Valley Bank had more than $250,000 yeah. of assets. So, I mean, can we just start calling this a rich person's bank? <laughs> like, can we just get over it? This wasn't the normal grandmother's people, you know, the retired parents who have their money in a bank and like 200000 maybe they should understand what that FDIC insurance was. You have people who are running operations that $250,000 is, is not necessarily even of consequence. But 2.5 million or 50 million and suddenly... You only had it in one account. That's not very smart. But then that all of that's in jeopardy. That's like you're losing your fortune. But if you're a company with fifty million in the bank, like you can't spread that around enough. Like what? What are you meant to do? Put it into treasury. Well, you'd need like two hundred bank accounts. Yeah, you would. You would if you really wanted. A lot of these businesses don't necessarily operate off the the notion that you need FDIC insurance. Mm. I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but the FDIC insurance is set up pretty clear. It's uh, $250,000 for just one business. If you're an individual, you can have a joint account. You can have your beneficiaries receive it through a trust. You can get a, you can get almost $2.5 million of coverage um, if you do it right as an individual. Companies don't get that benefit. I don't think companies get the benefit in the deposit scheme in the UK. I know it's like 80,000 pounds or is yeah, it 80, yeah. as an individual. I don't know that. Um, but it's a fair question. But but I think but I think it's and it's eighty thousand. That's it. Like the the UK is kind of stingy on it. They don't give you these options of having all. It's per person. So you have eighty thousand at the bank. You know, in, in pounds, you have ninety thousand. You lose that ten thousand. This show is brought to you by Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest Nasdaq listed Bitcoin miner using one hundred percent renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. And they are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films to our live events and they're even sponsoring my football team, Real Bedford. So I'm really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. Now, if you want to find out more about Iris Energy, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot C-O. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security a little more seriously. Because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your private keys. 
You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger user since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. The Nano S to me is the best hardware device on the market. So if you're not managing your private keys, please do go and check out the Nano S or the Nano S Plus now. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. But you can have that with a number of banks. So if you've got like £800,000, I think you would have to have like 10 bank accounts. At different banks. Yeah. If, that's, if you mean different banks, yes. Yes. But within one bank, you can have more than just 250000 And so this is where it becomes a scary thing because I'm trying to operate a business and I've got to make payroll. And you know, even if payroll's 80000 I have something called a cash flow. I've got to manage that. And I can't be in a situation where I'm risking not being able to make payroll. Yeah. And so I start to have to think about how do I de-risk this for my business? Do I have multiple bank accounts? Do I even start storing money in Tether? Because... Yeah, these are the things that kind of scare me. I'm trying to operate a good business here. And also, what happens at the end of the year if we're profitable? We make a good money. What am I going to do with that money? Do I leave it in the bank? Do I withdraw it? Do I keep it in Tether? Do I put it all in Bitcoin? I can't leave it all in Bitcoin because Bitcoin itself is volatile. But to go back to the point that you made, you know, what would happen if this was a different bank, if this was a community bank? You know, if this had been moms and dads and grandmas and local businesses where 97% of them had under $250,000, do you think they'd have saved it? No. Of course they wouldn't. Well, they wouldn't necessarily have gotten more than $250,000 of their deposits unless it was bought to another bank. What I guess I'm saying is the constituency of Silicon Valley Bank and to the point of businesses having to make payroll and things like that. Plus, what their argument was is, if we have to remember, it wasn't just Silicon Valley and Signature, it was uh, Silvergate, right, that had wound down its operations. So the argument the FDIC chair with Grunberg said is, we just had Silvergate wind down operations on like the 8th, right? It was like a Wednesday. Friday, we see SVP come down. Signature on Sunday was going down. What if there's like some contagion risk? So with that small... Bank example, let's call it small, mid-sized community bank example. If there was a contagion risk, like a couple of other banks around it, then maybe they would have. Um, but in principle, I don't think they'd save any one bank's depositors beyond two hundred fifty thousand dollars if there wasn't. But now you have. But this is this is a huge change again, Peter, because now you have people debating, saying we should take the cap off, that just all deposits should be insured. That's like a regular conversation now in the U.S., which blows my mind because I've lived under this idea of. Like, I try to say, like, you understand you're talking about insurance, right? I always try to remind people, FDIC's, like, if the bank fails, like, if you have a car accident, that's when the insurance pays in. Like, you mean no deductible, no anything, just <laughs> anything could happen, you're going to pay? There's just not enough money in the system to protect. Why would anyone believe in that insurance regime if there's... So you're now incentivizing people to take risk. Yes, the, the moral hazard that, Yeah. And they also would have pissed off a few of their donors if they hadn't rescued them. Yeah, yeah. And I think it got very... And I think that's why, ultimately, with Signature Bank being closed by New York, and there were some questions about that, like, you know, the one thing I think that's come up in this bank crisis is, what about those $4 billion of, like, digital asset deposits that didn't go back out to the bank from, uh, um, what was it, uh, signature, right? They held back that amount. 
and the you know the signet that supported a lot of the crypto asset companies. And I think the way the FDIC might look at it is like they should be lucky they're getting any of their money back because we we protected all of their deposits. So yeah, we won't let them in the banking system, but we're cutting them a check for you know two billion dollars. Like, good luck, Godspeed. They don't see it as a problem. You know, they're just saying we don't want that kind of risk in our banking system. And this is the new paradigm we're in now. It's almost like in every scenario, wherever there's risk or failures or breaks downs, there's this infinite money printed to fix the issues. There is. I will say, to your point, I think it's very interesting, is the idea that Tether is attractive, right? Because Tether is something that can be accepted by a lot of people, right? That's It's proving itself as that medium of exchange. Tether's really just backed by the U.S. dollars that it has. You know, it's sort of that whole concept of proof of reserves that came up. So, like, that Tether is is an interesting proposition that USDC is trusted so much by many and then it sort of broke its peg, but, you know, now trying to move along and say USDC is okay also. These are, I mean, I have, I use these stable coins with my business and send it in and out for payment. I did it just the other day, you know, I mean, so it's, it's not something that should be, you know, necessarily uh, a bad thing that we're looking to these. It's What's interesting is the type of U.S. dollar that we're looking for, right? It's no longer the $100 bill or the cash in the mattress. It's on your thumb drive with Tether, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen with the bank. But if you have Tether, it technically is a bearer deposit. So following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, it suggested that they stepped into signature early and that signature wasn't about to fail. Now, I get it. Like There could have been some contagion risk that was analyzed, that they were worried about what would happen, so they stepped in early. But there have been suggestions that this is part of this kind of Operation Choke Point 2.0, which, by the way, at first, I just thought this was like Bitcoin is being paranoid, and now I'm like, it's fucking everywhere. So what do you feel about that? I've never heard of a bank being closed on a Sunday. Well, isn't that to stop the Monday? It is to stop the Monday. That's the overcorrection. But before that, what my point is, is I don't remember FDIC closing any banks other than on a Friday. It's just not done. Um, that The joke is that you don't want to see, the FDIC can come audit your bank, but if they're showing up on a Friday, <laughs> you're looking for a new career. So like that's like the common standard, right? So if we look at that from a, a moment, what I think it calls into question is, it's a state chartered bank. So what did the New York Department of Financial Services look at or decide about? Perhaps there was this a little bit of anti-crypto sentiment about it and looking at what happened, not just with Silicon Valley, but the fact that you have, um, there's too many S banks, uh, Silvergate being wound down, saying maybe there is this contagion risk and it's applied to crypto firms. And so to be safe, we just feel like we need to shut it down. So they reached out to the FDIC. They looked at it. They probably did look at the Monday scenario, what it would look like if it actually opened up on Monday. And they, they felt that it would fail. I also, I think we'll learn more. There's always this thing, it's called a material loss review in the US where they review what happened during this whole process of, of the bank being closed. But I'd love to know how many people were withdrawing money from Signature over the weekend. Because nothing stops you, right? You can, it's, it won't happen until Tuesday, but you can start a process. So maybe they saw the amount of withdrawals that were gonna hit. That's the only thing I can think of that would justify it. Because this happened on a Sunday. Like, I don't know too much how you spend your Sundays here in the UK, but in the US, people are going to church, they're watching football, they're not going down to their local bank. So clearly there was a lot of, extra, you know, 
factors to say on a Sunday, we need to close. And that's where I think the question is that Barney Frank brought up who was on the board, right? Who said, I think this is a little bit of an attack on crypto. I think that's a little bit of a signal here of saying maybe there was this determination, like in the NYDFS's mind, a fair determination that crypto is a risk to the banking system because you had Silvergate fail and you had Silicon Valley Bank taken out that to be on the safe side, we need to preemptively close the bank. But that's the, that's the key though, the preemptive part. And that's where you have to remember in, with Signature and with, with Silicon Valley Bank, there, I hear a lot of people talking and like it's incorrect because they keep talking about, well, this is going to show that the least cost test won't be met. So the FDIC's least cost test means if you close down a bank, you have to make sure it's going to be the least cost to the taxpayer deposit insurance fund. A certain present value discount you know, rates you have to run to sort of figure all this out. The FDIC board and the Federal Reserve Board voted, and it's in law, to, to, to override that least cost test. And that's what Treasury Secretary Yellen said, is that the FDIC and the Federal Reserve Boards can make a recommendation here to say, it doesn't matter. And that's how they backed all the depositors. That's why there's going to be a $20 billion hit to the FDIC deposit insurance fund. Probably heard that number because of what's happening with the Silicon Valley Bank. But that that doesn't matter because this is all done under an emergency situation, which, again, takes us back to the Patriot Act, the emergency, the Restrict Act, the what do we do in times of, of real crisis? And do we end up with something that's way too broad that people decide to... It's like we're in permanent crisis at the moment. Yeah. But what I, what I would say is there's a question on people's mind that we'll never know, which is would Signature Bank have made it out? Remember, what was it? Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, one of the banks had a huge run that they were able to survive, right, for a couple of months. Silvergate did really well. Silvergate, for right. They had been hit and they took all those F- FHLB, the Federal Home Loan Bank yeah. uh, loans that, that saved them. So they were able to, to weather it. But we didn't give Signature a chance on Monday to say, will they weather it or will they end up bankrupt? And Silvergate wound themselves down and made every deposit a hole, I think, didn't. Is that uh, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Silvergate just shut down yeah. its operations eventually. But but we didn't give, we just didn't, we'll never know if Signature Bank had a, had a fighting chance or not on Monday. So do you think Operation Choke Point 2.0 is a real threat? And do you think it is a coordinated reaction? So my take on Operation Choke Point 2.0 is um, Operation Choke Point, the first one, that was after payday lenders and all these like buying guns and things like that. It was done very secretly. There wasn't anything openly from the administration that we need to do this. Um, The funny thing to me about Operation Choke Point 2.0, and I keep trying to tell everybody this, is it's out there. Like the White House put out a memo. You can go back. It says the risks of the crypto system. I think it says of January. And in that, in that memo, the White House says, cryptocurrency is a risk to the banking system of the United States. Everything should be done to keep that risk out of the banking system. We shouldn't be encouraging people to use crypto and banking. Like, it's all there. There, not, there isn't like, so yeah, I think there is a choke point 2.0. And there's a memo in the White House that just tells everybody now, were the, will the, reg, the question is, regulators like the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, they're supposed to be independent, right? But they're going to be influenced, right? They are an independent agency. Like, the, if the White House does an order, they don't have to follow it. You know, certain, the Treasury would have to. But Federal Reserve, FDIC have this privilege of being an independent agency. So they don't necessarily have to listen to the president. But I think you can be influenced by them. Yeah, and look, this is one of the things that 
I think is frustrating or I think gets lost in translation is this kind of confusion between Bitcoin and crypto. And when people talk about crypto being a threat to the economy, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe there would be such a massive bull run following by contraction that could lead to some difficulties in within the economy. And yeah, there could be huge losses and we don't know how much leverage would be in there. But yeah. I think a lot more needs to be done to separate Bitcoin as an asset class from crypto. And look, I would happily sit down with any senator and talk to them about this and explain to them, look, I'm anti-crypto. And this is why I care about Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is important, because I think most of it is bullshit. And it's become a real frustration for me. And so this is where I'll give a nod to the maxis, because for years they've been doing this. They've been saying Bitcoin, not crypto, and Bitcoin, not blockchain. They've been creating that separation. But when you hear it discussed in Congress or in media, there's a blurring of that. Not always, but sometimes there is a blurring that. You've got these like centralized institutions that are muddying the conversation regarding Bitcoin. And I don't think that's helping anyone. Well, I think the issue with crypto, if we can separate it this way, is that crypto is susceptible to the same issues that banks can be susceptible to. But then it's almost even more dangerous because there aren't regulators overlooking at it. Exhibit A is Sam Bankman-Fried. A lot of people try to say Sam Bankman-Fried is the anomaly, right? He's the Bernie Madoff and did all this stuff and isn't really a result of the fact that he wasn't, you know, regulated. And he was trying to change regulation. To me, that's more of a psychopath who's trying to change regulation in the Congress while he's doing all this really bad stuff behind the scenes. But, you know, when you look at crypto, to me, it's 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 trying to do things in a different way with computers and information technology, you know, DeFi and all that stuff, but in a way that is still, there's still centralized people involved that can really mess you up. With Bitcoin, you don't have that, right? You don't have the potential of mirroring the way the banking system works now of where a group, a few individuals or a group of people could somehow impact you know, your wealth. That's where I think you can start that division. And I think that's an important and valid one. That's why I've been pushing with like Texas with the Bitcoin, the resolution, right? Because the immediate criticism that's going to come up is, well, why are we just saying this for Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin's proven itself to be different than anything else. There hasn't been anything else that's come along yet to be an act just the way Bitcoin does. So there's something to be said, maybe. This shows you how maybe corruptible we are as humans, that we need to put something that sort of runs now in this fair system into, you know, computer language where we won't have certain people taking advantage of other people. Everyone has a fair access and can use it. And that's the thing, like, you know, we keep talking about, like, the risk of Bitcoin to the banking system. Like, it's been a, a they call the threat, but, I mean, the banking system has a lot of other threats. And it's important to explain what that threat is. It's a threat to the banking system, a bit like how Netflix was a threat to Blockbuster. Abs- absolutely. What I guess I'm trying to say is, like, when I look at the 2008 financial crisis, yeah. that was a failure of the large banks that allowed Bitcoin to be introduced. So it's almost like Blockbuster had a bad moment. People realized Netflix. And the ratings agencies with their ratings and the failure of the regulators. Like, 2008 was a failure of multiple institutions or bodies or businesses. Mm-hmm. But the threat now is they're threatening innovation. They're threatening Bitcoin. Yes, that is that is correct. It disintermediates the banks. You don't need the banks the way they function. To, it threatens the banking industry. Yeah, exactly, which might not be a bad thing. And listen, if I could store all my bank deposits in a hardware wallet, a bit like I do with, say, my Bitcoin, mm-hmm. if I could just do that, I would. 
Um, and I also think about stable coins, but I don't trust them. I've got an issue with stable coins. Can they be censored? Can they be shut down? But I don't like the banks either. I mean, I go into one of my bank accounts and I want to withdraw £2,000. They're asking me what it's for. And it's like, hold on. I didn't ask you what you were going to do with it when I deposited right. it with you, but you want to know what I want to do mm -hmm. with my money. It's like, fuck you. This is none of your business. And I've had so many bank accounts closed down and closed down for different reasons. Closed down for telling them that what I spend my money on is my business. I've even had one closed down because one of my sponsors was a crypto company. Like, fuck these people. But I don't think stablecoins fix that because you just rely on someone else's bank then. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like I have to trust Tether's relationship with their bank. I, you know, I can't argue that, uh, yes, in that degree, Bitcoin is definitely a risk. I'm not going to, yeah. but to me, it's more of a, a threat than a risk, right? Like to say Bitcoin is a risk, it's like you said, it's an innovation. It's something that we've done much better. But here's the thing, Peter, and this is where I, I, I we, just, we did some sort of design thinking for a second. Let's just say all the banks are gone and we're just operating with Bitcoin. How people get homes, you know, we have to, this is where, you know, like we have to really think about maybe there's, to me, I'm not an all or nothing kind of person. I think Bitcoin really can become mainstream in a fast way, use it on the weekends, whatever. Maybe people still need, or there still are use for banks because people still are willing to put some of their deposits there, right? Not just eliminate it altogether because they know that part of it is they also might need to go to that bank for a loan to get a house that they can't afford. And I'm with you on all of this, but Bitcoin is a threat because... And when I say threat, I don't mean necessarily it's going to destroy the banks, right. but it is a threat. But I think you need both. Like my father over there, bless him, like he's not going to be able to set up a Bitcoin wallet. He's not going to be able to manage his private keys. And my daughter isn't. But she's got a bank account now. She's got a card. She can go and tap it. She can make payments. And so I think we need both. Yeah. But I also think we need them to stop fucking with our money. If these banks are failing, let them fail. Stop interfering. Well, it's interesting when you talk about like the banks fucking with their money because Silicon Valley Bank is, you know, it, it's a horrible thing that happened, but it's so ironic if you think about the fact that it was related to interest rate risk, meaning it was the Federal Reserve raising rates that caused one of its own banks to end up failing. I mean, uh, the, the irony of that is, I mean, talk about too many cooks in the kitchen, you know, you're trying to raise rates to stave off inflation. And what bothers me a lot about that, and to your point, is interest rate risk is like the, one of the, the most basic risks that you learn. Like, like in my bank examiner school, okay, there's this thing called the camels rating. And it's capital assets management, valuing the management of the bank, earnings, what the liquidity is like, and S. S is sensitivity. S is sensitivity to interest rate risk. So it's literally one of the six major factors that every regulator evaluates a bank on when they go see. And there's a broad history of banks having problems when the Fed starts raising rates. So somebody was asleep at the switch on Silicon Valley Bank to allow that all that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, someone should have been alarmed immediately. There, and we'll learn this later. That's why I keep going back to keep in mind there'll be like a matter, you know, anytime it requires uh, a material loss review. When there's a material loss to the FDIC insurance fund, we'll learn all about it. I'm not necessarily saying it was as, you know, real, like, misconduct, but it, it, if it was incompetence, that's really scary. You know what I want, Jason? I want to be able to store my money in a place that I trust. And mm -hmm. I like custodia. I like what Caitlin Long's trying to do. I think 108% uh, reserve-backed bank. I want to be able to use a service like that. I want to be able to go to a place and say, here's my money, store all of it, 
and charge me for that. Be my custodian. Yes. I want that. That's all I want. I don't want to have any risk. I don't want to go into a place and think they're fucking with my money. I don't want to go to a bank and find out their bus one day. And you know what? If I use a bank and they fail, great. Let them fail because I trusted them. But please just stop fucking with our money. Let the economy work the way it's meant to work. I absolutely, I agree. I think you should have, the the problem is, and it, it's so interesting that you said that because if you look at Caitlin Long and what she's trying to do is really important because there is um, this, this notion by a gentleman named E. Jerry Corrigan. E. Gerald Corrigan was uh, like right, right-hand person to Volcker during the Volcker okay. experience at the Fed. So Federal Reserve Bank, you know, and he wrote this essay and the essay, it's very famous. It's called Our, Our Bank's Special. And the argument the Federal Reserve put forward is banks are special, meaning they're different than any other industry. And it came up with a different paradigm for how we need to view banks. It said banks need to be the transmission for the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve, like the transmission gears. Think about like almost like a car. Like In other words, we need to be able to control people and how they're spending their money. So that's a key instrument that a bank plays because we can raise or lower rates and the banks will follow suit as we need them. So they're a transmission gear to monetary policy. We have the FDIC insurance that protects them. Banks are special because they can get loans from a discount window at the Federal Reserve. So if you're ever having a problem, they can get loans. It's it's essentially defined the way banks are viewed. It's it's Banks didn't used to be viewed this way. It's is really a creation since 1913 with the Federal Reserve of how we view banks. Banks used to be, back in the 1894 California gold rush, it was, hey, I just got all this gold and I want Peter as a customer. I got to prove to him I have the best vault in my bank. It'll be 100% backed. I got all your gold, but you want to know, do I have the best vault? So the banks that succeeded were the ones that had the best vaults and kept the robbers out. That's what we're now down to in the digital world here is people like Kate Long coming in saying, this is not what banks were intended to do if people want to save money. But there is an argument that's still talking about this transmission belt of the monetary policy that's saying, well, if you're putting deposits in, Peter, like, don't you remember what's that um, famous movie about, uh, you know, life is good. I'm, I'm butchering the, it's a wonderful life. Mm. You put some money in the bank, and then this other person can take that money and go get a home. And that's the one question about your, the world you're envisioning, which is not a criticism, because you're right, you should be able to do that. But then everyone's going to say, but then how is that other person who doesn't have enough money to go buy a house, can't they get a, where are they going to get the mortgage? And that's where that whole vision of banks from E. Gerald Corrigan comes into play, and where we have to question, what should a bank be able to do, and how can people afford homes, Right. I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago, it might have been Lynn Alden, but I could be wrong, that was said, banks aren't really banks, they're basically long duration bond funds. I mean, look at Bitcoin custody, right? What do they do? They're competing on trust, whether it's cold card or ledger or Trezor, they're competing against custodial centralized services. You know, which one do you want to use? There's multi-sig solutions. Everything that you have with your Bitcoin, however you want to store it, is a competition on trust. And it's a bit like what you talked about with the gold rush. You know, which banks would you use? How would you know which ones to trust? Which are the most secure? Mm-hmm. But that's all it is. There's different incentives out there. And look, I maybe just want a full reserve bank. But does that mean we're going to get rid of other banks with free services? No, because not everyone's going to want to pay for that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that, if anything, because you you have the 100% reserves, there's certainly a way to do that. And um, again, it's... 
what is, what is born in crisis, whether it was 1913 to like not let banks have crises or 2008, you know, people have needs and we are having the version of the digital gold rush where people are looking for that security. So that's where, you know, Caitlin Longbank is, is likely to win. Um, what happens is when our political system, like, you know, the, the economy is becomes part of that political system. And I mean, you quoted Abraham Lincoln at the beginning of the show. Abraham Lincoln started the national greenback currency to try to raise money for the Civil War. It's very interesting. I don't know if you know this, but the, the Secretary of the Treasury at the time wanted to put in God we trust on those greenbacks, which exists now. But back then, that didn't go through. Was it full faith? Full faith and credit of the United States government. But it it does now say, if you look, it says, in God we trust. But it didn't say it back in 1863 or whenever that was issued because Abraham Lincoln said, I'm just giving him a piece of paper. Like he even knew. He's like, this isn't gold. This isn't silver. And he actually told a parable where he said, I'm sorry, you know, like with like Peter and Paul, like I can't give you gold and silver today. So please accept what I'm giving you. But, but he did that. In, in the idea of we have to win the war, you know, we have to solve that. And so that's when we face these, these issues that override the issue of like a gold rush of needing the vault of saying, but hey, we have to raise money because we have to keep the whole country together. It's not much different than now, right? Nation states, Bitcoin, what's the balance between the two? Well, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot we've discussed today. Operation Choke Point 2.0, we've got the expansion of the BRICS nations, we've got banking failures, you know, we've got people looking at using alternative currencies. It, it is a, it's a really weird time, and there's been a lot going on. It's great for us. We get to make a lot of interesting content. But just to finish off, like, what is the stuff that you are thinking about right now? What's keeping you up at night? Um, what's keeping me up is I don't really know if the quote-unquote banking crisis is over. We've done another temporary measure. But um, it was a process of many months and then a couple years where maybe we'll fa face the repercussions, like you said, of we overcorrected in 2008, right? But we didn't necessarily solve the problem at the time. And if it happens at a later date, maybe this is that later date to pay that check. Jason, thank you for coming on. Really loved having you here. Is there anything I've not asked you about that you think we should have covered that we haven't? No. Well, we did it. Jason, great to see you, man. Great to see you, Peter. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, what did you make of that one? Did you enjoy it? Right, I have a confession to make. We had a corruption in my audio file, so we had to cheat a little bit. It was actually a massive pain in the ass. But Danny, my boy Danny, transcribed all the audio from the camera, and I had to re-record my entire part three to four days later after the interview. Um... I wonder, did anyone spot it? Did it seem weird or did we get away with it? Let me know. Anyway, it was great to have Jason back on the show and I will definitely be getting him back whenever there is something to talk about on the regulatory front. And if you've got any questions about this or anything else, you know you can get in touch. You can email me on hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can come and join our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. 